Amen. Well, good morning. Everybody doing good? Everybody got like, you know, um, hung, hangover from all the candy from last night and trick-or-treaters. We hope that you guys had a good time with your families and friends and neighbors. Well, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. If you're new to Mission Church, man, we're glad that you've come to be with us. But we've got to get to work today. So turn with me to chapter 4 of 1 Peter is where we're going to be hanging out. Um, if you notice, last week we talked about this whole idea that Christ, for Christ, also suffered. That's in chapter 3, verse 18, and we found hope and security and knowledge in knowing this, that he says this in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus' suffering had purpose, and that purpose was to bring men and women to God, to unite them in fellowship and relationship, to once heal what was once Broken. So again, Peter, the last several chapters has now been really applying these theological truths, and he does so again today. He talks about Christ's suffering, reminds us of that, and immediately goes into works of application. So looking at this first verse in chapter 4, since therefore, so again, anytime that you see the word therefore in scripture, you ask the question, what is it therefore, which always points back. So that back portion is talking about Jesus is suffering and the significance of that suffering and then he goes forward so since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh that's what Jesus did he suffered as a man in the flesh now he goes in application arm yourselves he's speaking to believers at this moment and he's saying arm yourselves with the same way of thinking this idea arm yourselves within the Greek language was a a word picture of a soldier who is equipping oneself with a weapon to take up arms. It means to, to be ready to prepare oneself or to focus on this idea of equipping oneself to arm, to furnish with weapons, to equip oneself with weapons. It, it also paints this picture that is meant to be encouraging. We kind of see this idea, if you know anything about the Old Testament, a picture of David, right? He's going into battle, and, and he goes and he gets his slingshot, and he gets five smooth stones. He's equipping himself to go do battle against the enemy. This verb was used in Greek to also to mean a Greek soldier preparing himself by placing upon his armor upon his body. And this was not light army, this or armor. This was heavy artillery that these soldiers were putting on because they knew they were going to fight. Whether they lived or died depared, determined um, whether or not they had on the proper armor and were prepared to fight. Now, again, this is going to date me a little bit. Some of you are going to be like, amen, I know what you're talking about. Others of you, I'm about to lose, but that's how it is with all illustrations. But I'm a child of the 80s. Again, I've told many stories about my dad. I grew up watching action films, and one of those action films or trilogies was the guy named Rambo, Sylvester Stallone, First Blood, and then there were several others that came out after that. But I remember even to this moment, watching first, or the second one especially, and there's this scene where they come to John Rambo and they're like, hey John, there's a situation going on in Vietnam and we need your help. There's some POWs there and we need you to help us. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. All right. And so he goes into this solid black room. 
which is strange, and there's a light shining down just on Rambo. And the cinematography and the camera work is they show like an up close of him like tying his boot, right? And then he like puts on a belt, and then he like takes this big knife and he puts it in his sleeve and it's all you see is this huge knife going into the side of his sleeve. And then all of a sudden, all you do is see this big veiny muscle arm right here and he flips it like this and all of these artillery shells just wrap around it, his arm. And then it clicks to a picture of this and he's all hot and sweaty by himself in a black room with the light. Com- it's a weird scene. And he's <laughs> He's hot and sweaty, and all of a sudden, all you see is this big, muscular, veiny, sweaty back, and he's taking a bandana, and he's putting it around his head, and he cinches it down. And then the next scene is, he turns around, and he's got these, all these bullets going across his chest. He's carrying this big M16, and then he gets on an airplane and flies to Vietnam. Talk about an uncomfortable trip, <laughs> all right? It's right there. But you get the image here. You get the picture of equipping for battle, equipping for war. This is what Peter tells us to do, to arm ourselves for battle, to arm ourselves with what? With the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, our armor is not artillery shells. Our armor is, is not a tank. It, it's not a Patriot missile, if you remember the early 90s. It is not those things. Our armor as followers of Jesus, waging war in a culture that is, is bent around, that is worshiping sin, Satan, and death, our armor as followers of Jesus is putting on the mind and attitude of Jesus. Putting on the mind and attitude of Jesus. See, the thing is, if you are truly following Jesus, if you're an authentic Christian, if you have truly been saved and Jesus has radically changed your life, or if he has saved you, he will radically change your life, here's the deal. There is going to be social, cultural, relational, physical suffering to come. So we must be prepared for that by equipping ourselves to have the attitude and mind of Jesus. He reminds us that if you flip over one chapter or a few chapters to chapter 1 verses 13 when he says, Peter, in this book, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. See, ladies and gentlemen, we got to be careful of what we think or in thinking of a way that is contrary to what the scripture says. What Jesus says, the mind and the attitude of Jesus should be reflective in us. And so we need to be very careful in our thinking and the way that we view all things. It should be reflective of this gospel truth and ultimately of the person and work of Jesus. I think there's too many of us sitting around in circles in Bible studies or in conversations with people saying, I think we need to know. We need to know what the Bible says. And then whatever it says, that's what you think. Okay? But this idea of preparing ourselves and equipping ourselves, arming ourselves for battle, why is this important? Well, much of the spiritual battle, did you guys hear that? We're in a spiritual war. It really does exist. 
But most of that is not taking place in some realm that we can see. Most of that fighting is taking place and the spiritual battle is actually for our minds and our hearts. How we think, how we feel determines our actions and reactions to life. We are constantly taking in information. We're constantly taking in feelings. We're constantly being bombarded with words, relationships, events, and all of these things wage war on our minds over what is truth. The most dangerous thing that we can do is, is as a person, is, is to realize, or excuse me, the, the most dangerous thing about a person isn't necessarily what you can always physically see them doing. It's what's taking place in here that it can be the most dangerous. See, we need to wake up every morning of our lives as followers of Jesus, realizing that we are going out to battle. And in doing so, as the scripture would tell us, is to put on the full armor of God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back with me a few books here. There's a book called Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all right? So we're going to Ephesians, and in Ephesians, in chapter 6, Paul also will address this sort of idea of arming yourself. In Ephesians chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not have to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which is, uh, excuse me, um, the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What is he telling us there? Paul is, is reminding us, man, again, we're going into spiritual battle. Culture is heading in one direction. Their belief systems, their worldviews, their ideas of the gospel, their ideas of, of all aspects within our lives are heading one way, and yet we are called as followers of Jesus to head in the exact opposite direction. And in doing so, we must put on the full armor of God in which many of those um, pieces of our armor centered around the Holy Spirit at work in our lives but also the truth and knowing the word of God. Confessionally, as I stand before you this morning, I've been in a season here where I've really been struggling to be putting on the armor of God through consistent prayer, Bible study, 
And honestly, because of those inconsistently inconsistencies, I, I stand before you even feeling as I am in a weaker state. Spiritually. Physically, even. Emotionally. I see this idea of the, the fear or the, the fighting of the drift, even as, as one of your pastors. And yet, when I come back to Scripture, and I see two things, that if we're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, and if we're going to withstand the evil ones of sin, Satan, and death, then, then we must be consistent in two things. One is devotions. Your personal Devotions. Faith comes by hearing the word. Study to show thyself approved. This idea that we need to constantly, daily be feeding on the word of God. If not, then one becomes weak and is more susceptible to sin, Satan, and death. Yet if you I asked 25 college students this week, how do you know the word? Do you know, you claim to be a Christian, and, and they even had write papers for me this week, and most of them that even professed to be G, uh, followers of Jesus knew nothing about the Bible. It had no authority really on their lives. Most of them even said who claimed to be followers of Jesus that it was a fictional book. But we follow Jesus. We're Christians. Or that some of it was fictional and some of it was true, and I was thinking in my mind, like, how did... Well, like, who are you to determine which one is which? What parts are real and what parts are not? That's what Thomas Jefferson did, okay? Cut out all the miracles of Jesus, left holes in the Bible, okay? We got to be very careful of that. We must fight that drift. If I was to come to you today and say, what do your personal devotional life look like? What does your prayer time look like? What does your family devotionals look like? All of those things, if I was to ask you those questions, the temptation then is, is to, one, is to become guilty, which I'm going to get to that in just a second. But, but the idea is deeper than that. It is crucial for us to have a private, devotional life in order to equip ourselves to have the attitude and the mind of Jesus, these are the whispers of God that we have in front of us. It is the mind of God that we get to read and have this opportunity, and we don't know it, how can it be transferred to our mind? The second thing is, is a communal life, meaning engaging with brothers and sisters in Christ and on a deep level, not how's the, just the weather, or just let me help you with this, or you help me with that. But a deepened, committed level of community with brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet we fight that drift. Man, people will miss church for a sniffle that they would never miss work for. It would. All excuses okay? You would never take that many days away from your work for a vacation that you will gladly take away because you need a break from a Sunday gathering or from a missional community group. Why? It's not as important. Let's just be honest. You know, there, there are days I wake up, I want a day off. I want a break. 
I get it. It's fighting to drift into every one of us. Now, again, the, 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 the issue is, is that if we were to look at this in any other way, if we were to look at the community of faith as a team, right, what makes a good team? What makes a good team and the best teams that we have known within our world, I, I think specifically about the early 90s and the Chicago Bulls, what made the Chicago Bulls so good at basketball was this, was that everyone on the team, you came to practice. That was a big deal. You participated. But what made the great teams or good teams even greater is that you couldn't get the star athletes off the court after the practice had ended. There was an individual dedication. Like right now, Ava is playing, well, she's on a volleyball team. Playing, eh, that's debatable, all right? But she is on a volleyball team, and I, I, I keep trying to, to help her and to show her, you see the difference between how these girls are playing and how our team is definitely playing. These girls live, breathe, and eat volleyball. They practice when it's time to practice together as a team. But you know what else they do? They practice on their own. They're not only devoted when they're around everyone, but they're devoted when no one is looking. And you combine those two things, and it makes for a great team. Again, when we hear these things automatically, I guarantee some of you are sitting there, he's like, man, I just, you're making me feel guilty. And I want you to know that that is not the truth. The heartbeat as one of your pastors is this, is that we must realize that if we are not prepared both mentally and physically, spiritually and privately in our devotional life, but also in our communal life, then we are going into a battle, an artillery war, a gunfight with a plastic fork. A spork if you're really fancy. Okay? We're going into that battle ill-prepared. And as your pastor, it's my responsibility. It's Pastor Justin's responsibility to shepherd you. What do shepherds do? They carry a big stick. Because what are sheep prone to do? To wander, to stray. And what are the pastors supposed to do? They're supposed to gently guide, get back in line. Let's get back in line. Let's get do this. Let's get back in line. Let's, let's, let's get, so pastorally, my concern for us as a congregation has not been to try to guilt you because here's the deal. If you just feel guilty and you change your behavior for a little while, it will not last. My heartbeat this morning, our heartbeat this morning in shepherding you is, is not to ask the question of not simply why is there, um, you know, inconsistencies with this or inconsistencies with that or I hear people not, not being committed to, uh, excuse me, um, committed to a personal devotional life or a, a community of faith or missional communities. When I start seeing this happen, I want you to know my, my concern is, is that I, I don't want you to just check off some religious box. That's guilt. But as a pastor, my responsibility, because I'm held responsible, I'm going to stand before God and answer for all of you. That's what the Bible says. A lot of pressure on my shoulders, a lot of pressure. Congratulations. Okay? A lot of pressure there. My concern is not the checking of box. My concern is the heart behind the decisions of why it's not important for you or for me. That's the wrestling I have. That's the wrestling I'm going through is, man, not, not, oh, check the box. I did my Bible Gateway daily reading plan today. But what is my heartbeat behind the days that I don't? 
And even the days that I do, what's my heartbeat? Do you get the difference? My concern, again, as a pastor, is that I'm, I'm concerned for our hearts. Because there must be a rooted issue that is showing forth fruit. And that's what we've got to get to. It's not for higher church attendance or higher missional community attendance or higher engaging at, you know, the Monster Dash attendance. It's not for the sake of those things. It's, it's wondering what is within our hearts, myself included, of why we aren't engaging. When the Bible says clearly that we should. Clearly. See, the rejection of these things, again, reveals something about our heart. Within us, the Bible tells us here, even in this passage, what does he say? So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, which is in one hand, but for the will of God. So within us, there are two wills taking place within our lives. We have our human will, our human desire. And, and I believe in free will as far as this. You will freely choose to sin every time. Okay? Outside of Jesus. This is your human nature. It is, it is within you. Um, writers, great wise men before me, have written about this, and they call it the bondage of the will. So I'm cool with using terminology of free will as long as we realize that free will is tied to a big stake. All right? And I'm free to roam around as long as I don't leave that area because I can't, because it's my nature. Contrasting with what God desires for us. What is God's will? He tells us that no longer for human passions, human will, but for the will of God. If anything that I've noticed more and more as I have kids, I didn't realize this before I had kids, that life is a vapor. Pastor Justin was talking about this. Please pray for Pastor Justin. He is good. A grandmother that's in a, it's a really bad uh, health and those sorts of things. And we've talked a lot about this week about his grandmother and uh, just where she is and how quick time flies. You know, and um, we see that. The Bible even tells us that. You, you go to sleep one day and it's your eighth birthday. You wake up the next day, it's your 88th birthday. It goes by extreme, you go, how... How did we get here? Time flies, right? Scripture alludes to this over and over and over, and yet the Holy Spirit encourages us through this word and through other passages to clothe ourselves, prepare ourselves for a battle for the days that we have left. So even if we've lived unfaithfully up until this time, even this passage tells us, man, it is time, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, so as long as I'm in this earth suit, no longer live for human passions, but live for the will of of God. We encourage you not to live simply in the way that you want, but live how God wants. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may I remind you that the fruit of salvation is the ability and the desire, ability and the desire to do what? To do the will of God. In our sinful selves, we are unable to do this. It's impossible. And honestly, we have no desire to do it. But through Jesus, we have the power to do God's will. What's God's will? God's will is that the gospel would saturate all of our lives, even the parts we don't want him to. 
That he would saturate those things from be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear, be careful little hands what you do, feet where you go, all of those things saturated from the time at the office to the time by ourselves to the time with our family that is a gospel saturated place where every person goes who falls in, in the gospel, who rests in the gospel, uses every ounce of the time that God graces them with, though short, to reflect his glory in Christ in all that they do. One of the ways that this is illustrated is in our desire to honor him. Knowing that honoring him over our sinful pleasures brings exaltation, worship, and honor to this God. And in doing so, by being obedient in a culture that doesn't understand, that suffering brings us closer to God. See, suffering, ladies and gentlemen, for doing righteous things, suffering for righteous sake. I'm not talking about the, the suffering that is done because of sin, but this passage specifically is talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. So God says, share the gospel. You share the gospel, people ostracize you. That's relational abandonment. It is suffering for righteousness' sake. Giving generously, faithfully, to the point to where it hurts, or you don't get to have that fifth pumpkin spice latte of the day. All right? Is, is that in this, that it makes us hungry for God. How many of you guys have ever been in a place where you felt relationally, again, abandoned, ostracized, all these sorts of things? Again, not because of sin in your life, but for doing the will of God. This suffering causes a longing within us. It causes a clinging to him, which fulfills God's will in our very lives. And these are extremely tough decisions to sometimes make aren't they? Following Jesus has influence over those who are bringing even the suffering. Doing, acting like a non-believer is extreme contrast to doing the will of God. To doing the will of God. Look what he says here in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The term Gentiles there, he's talking about non-believers. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. All right, so that's, again, human will, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless adultery. Hopefully, we have some children in here today, so I'm not going to break down the word study on each one of those. Hopefully, you get a picture. I think it is interesting, though, that the last thing he mentions is lawless adultery. Like, there's even a, this pagan culture, there's even rotten things that you can do that even the pagans go, that's completely wrong. <laughs> like, that's lawless adultery. Like, we're game for everything, but not that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> right? Don't, don't pursue after those things. He continues on verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 3 proclaims what? That there's a time 
of living like Gentiles, non-believers, but that time has passed if you are a follower of Jesus. That time is done. So we should not be consumed with pursuing our own righteousness, our own desires, our own wills. We should not be living like unbelievers. There should be a clear difference between our lives and these other individuals' lives. What does he tell us this? They will be surprised when what? When you don't join them. They're going to be surprised when you don't join them. Now, some of you have a little bit different story than I am, so I've heard from some of your stories. You remember that awkward season that you went from B.C. to Jesus, all right? So before Christ, before Christ, you're this wild dude. I think of like Will Ferrell in almost every movie he's been in, like totally immoral, wild colorful language, drunk, like every group of friends needs that one drunk friend that will do anything and everything, right? And you're that guy or that gal. You are open to everything. You go to sleep a drunk. You wake up the next morning and Jesus has saved you. And so you transition into that awkward season of knowing that God has saved you and in response to his salvation, there is a life now for you to live. So you go the next day to your friend's house and they're all getting tore, trashed. And you enter that awkward season of hanging out with all these people who know your stuff. And you no longer participate in that stuff. And so you now live in this tension. You go from, hey, let's, let's get drunk to, hey, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink tonight. And they ask you why, and you're like, because it's an idol in my life, and Jesus has now saved me. It was 24 hours ago, you were plastered. Yeah, it happens quick, man. <laughs> All right, Scottsville Road experience, like Paul. And they're like, who's Paul? Isn't he drunk too? <laughs> All right, but... <laughs> You, you, you see this tension. You had that awkward moment. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Of the very people that know all of your stuff, they were your community. They were probably a tighter community than even some of you have experienced within church. You do anything for each other, and yet now there's a major difference within you, and that difference is the person and work of Jesus, and he's called you to go into that place and to stand, to go against that culture or maybe you're in a dating relationship and that relationship has gone physical and through the power of the Holy Spirit either he saves you or convicts you that that is not the way of Christ that is not the way of the gospel and so you put the brakes on you've been going one direction you stop it you head the different direction do you know the tension that that causes causes major major issue peter is is speaking to the su surprise like astonishment what do you, what do you mean you're not going to do this that that the non-believers will have when you go from being immersed in sin with them to not participating i mean we live in a very interesting culture don't we i mean listen listen to this we live in a culture that supports and does not think it's strange at all for you to get plastered drunk they don't think that's weird. They actually highly encourage it. They, 
they, they don't think that it's, it's, it's wrong to, to have friends with benefits or to have, um, mex, uh, you know, multiple, um, you know, intense partners. They, they, they don't think that it's, it's weird to, to smoke weed, right? They don't think that those things are strange or to get divorced over anything or same-sex marriage or, or, or any of those sorts of things. But if you stand for Jesus, you've lost your mind. That's the culture that we live in. They can believe all these things, but when we don't participate, they think we are the crazy ones. Where it says there, when, when you do not join them, it's also translated that you do not run with them. We all know that a crowd attracts a crowd. And it's not to say that all crowds, even within church crowds, are bad. But here's what can often happen within a crowd. It can lose its original purpose. Right? You see a wreck or you see a fight. When I was in high school, you used to have fights all the time. And, and you see these two people fighting and it's one person that goes, fight! And then what does everybody else do? Whew. Right? To watch this transpire, to see this happen. A crowd attracts a crowd. But what can happen within a crowd is that you can lose the original purpose of why you were originally gathered. Why it was originally happening. We don't even know why we're here anymore, but this is what we do. We gather. We do this. Even if it's wrong. Put Burning Man, if you know what that is, in Bowling Green, and you got lots of problems. It's a big festival, like, I think out in Arizona or somewhere that way. We're essentially for like a week, people burn a bunch of stuff, run around half naked, smoke weed, all right? You know. We call that Tuesday around here. Um, but <laughs> you see this, this crazy thing. That is all taking place. It is happening. But because everybody is doing it and they have the permits to do it, it doesn't seem wrong. It doesn't appear to be wrong. And that, that's what happens within a crowd. Well, if everybody's doing it, then it must be right. Must be right. You know, it's, it is extremely difficult for us to deny our flesh, isn't it? Like, I'm telling you, from now until December 30th, I could eat nothing but Christmas tree cakes, and I would be completely fine because I love those little Debbies. I love them. I am addicted to them. But denying my flesh in that can be extremely, extremely difficult. Wanting, desire, longing for, as the scripture tells us here, the lust of the flesh. It's not just a, a sensuality sort of issue, but it can be toward lots of things. Money, relationships, power, popularity, all those things to want to, to fit in, to be a part of this situation. Man, especially when a majority of people are doing it. They are doing it. Remember the age-old parent argument? Would you jump off a cliff if everyone was doing it? Well, it depends on what cliff you're talking about. Depends. Because see, a, a, a lot of us would. A lot of us have. And, and I want you to know, it doesn't matter the height of the cliff. That cliff could be as, as, as thick as a piece of paper, and yet if you jump off of it, drifting away from God and away from God's will, I want you to know it's, it's damnable by hell itself. 
It's deserving of the wrath of God. That's how serious it is. And yet, man, let's, let's face it, man, I've, I've been in those situations. Sin is always more fun when other people are doing it with you. Okay? It always is. And yet, a lot of times when we join in because it's popular and it's cool, it, it, again, it, it no longer seems wrong. Like we don't even know what's right and what's wrong anymore. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. See, the scripture, then and now, wants us to understand that because of Jesus and his obedience to the point of death, that we literally, in and through him, can be done with sin. Now, I'm not talking about what some of our other brothers and sisters in Christ have taken this to extremes with, with personal perfection, or sinless perfection, as they call it. I'm not talking about that. But a deep desire within us to reject sin. To hate it. And as I will find myself sometimes praying, Lord Jesus, help me not only not to do something, but also to hate it. See, I think we've got to be really careful with using this statement. Well, you know I'm not perfect. Well, we, we know that. <laughs> you didn't tell us anything that we didn't know about you. Okay? And I get that statement and that sentiment. But we need to be careful with using that statement as a license or a justification for our sin. That's the danger. Because a lot of times, you know what people do? They'll tell you about their sin, right? They, they'll tell you something, well, that's not, you know what I did? But, you know, nobody's perfect. That's jacked up. That is ungospel, okay? But sin, Satan, and death will convince you that that's, that's okay, that that's, that's good, that that is right, that is holy and just. But that is not the gospel. That is not God's will in these things. See, the context of these passages is that the followers of Jesus, that their heart's desire should be to want to break away from that sin. Knowing good and will, that if they break away from sin, Satan, and death, and, and other people see that, which they will, it will cause suffering. So they're willing to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Knowing and declaring and standing in the full armor of God by saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to live this life. I'm not going to live this confusing, you know, paradox between trying to straddle the fence. But I'm going to live faithfully to the will of God for his glory, for our good, for the good of our city. Because he's number one. And we, we live for his name and proclaiming his name because he is our shelter. He is our strong tower. He is our healer. And in, and in doing so, that causes a separation to say, no, I will not do this. And in doing so, ladies and gentlemen, if you are obedient, you will, I will experience suffering. And yet we stand knowing that to be true. So he continues here when he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, um, a few verses up from where we're reading today. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. See, I want us to be good readers of the scripture. 
This passage dealing with suffering, immediately, sometimes when we read it, we'll go straight to a sickness or an illness, a a family issue, a children issue, some sort of problem that we're having. And yet specifically, to place it into context, this scripture is is talking about a suffering that is happening within them in all of 1 Peter, that this is primarily taking place because these people are living obediently. They're doing what is right. They're standing for their faith. One of the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to empower us to be willing to suffer in this way. In the book, Everyday Church, I love this book, but I'll first say it this way. The willingness to suffer is a sign of our break with sin. The willingness to suffer is a sign of our break with sin. Remember the social pressures we used to talk about this a lot. I don't know if they still do in school. But especially when you're a teenager, they called it peer pressure, right? Social pressure. And we all thought eventually we would graduate from that and we wouldn't have those problems anymore, which is a huge lie. Right? Huge lie. We, we even create in certain neighborhoods people to make sure you pay a fee. Your H-O, what is it called? HD80. HD80? HOA, Homeowners Association, right? Make sure your grass is cut this high. Can't have a junker in the front yard. Can't build anything without permission, right? We, we kind of always are keeping up with these social statuses, and it doesn't end in teenagers. It continues on with adults. We see this taking place all of the times, yet when we refuse to participate in, in, in sin, social pressure becomes awkward and painful. We sit there wrestling in our minds with whether or not we should participate in the, the, the latest gossip or if we should, you know, when people at the, the water cooler start talking about the movie Hangover 10, you know, drunk, drunker and drunkest or whatever it's going to be named. I mean, we, we sit there in this conversation going, okay, do I just play it off? Do I just do that weird laugh like you know what's happening? Recently, um, my wife, after the latest Supreme Court ruling, she um, was bombarded at work um, after the announcement came off with, with several employees coming to her as the token preacher's wife to get her philosophy and theology and practice on dealing with those issues. And um, she told me that several of these people that they kind of just sat there and kind of like nod their head and smiled. And then after the conversation, it was like after they, as soon as they left the room, they got on social media and was blasting her without putting her name. But she knew. Right? It's awkward. Because if you know that, how does that go the next time you have, see that person? Hey! Right? It's extremely tension. That, awkward is, that awkwardness is there if you're being obedient. That suffering is there if you're following after Jesus. Peter's readers were experiencing this sort of social tension and awkwardness. And it had become extremely difficult for them. And ladies and gentlemen, if anything that this uh, recent season that we have been in is that it has brought to the surface those who are going to stand for the truth of God's word and those who are wanting to change the scriptures and change the truth to fit 
modern society. I know this to be true. I had a student write this week and they said, the Bible, I believe is this, that is a very old book, but we must adapt it with our ever-changing culture. That is not the gospel. The gospel is we're seeing believers in Jesus, authentic followers of Jesus, stand in the midst of this social chaos and culture that we're in, stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And it is only, not in necessarily a prophetic way, just my personal, thus saith Eric, will get worse. It will. We've got to be willing to choose a pathway that is different than what we're seeing and be okay with the suffering that will ensue. See, many of us have chosen the pathway of silence over the path of being separated. We've chosen the path of being silent over the path of being separated. We're afraid of losing our jobs. We're afraid to not have any friends. We're, we're, we're afraid of this, we're afraid of that. We have this kind of idea that, that, that all is going to fall away. And yet the gospel remains truth. It tells us this, calls us to follow this. I see this again all the time when, when I ask my college students certain questions that are very debatable, like abortion or, or gay marriage or, or really anything. And you just sit there and you watch them squirm in their seats. Why? Because they don't want to say anything wrong. They don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to be thought wrongly. They don't want to get in a fight with anybody in the name of tolerance. They don't want to speak against what is being said. I can relate to that. Confessionally, church, I, I love the praises of men. I always have. It's been a, a major struggle and issue for me my entire life. This last week, um, or this last month, was Pastor Appreciation. Thank you guys. You're very gracious to us and very sweet. You tricked us last week. Thank you. We appreciate it. Very sweet, very kind. This last week, there was a, a, another church. I won't name the church or the pastor, but the church came up with a video that they published, and it was a rap. But it was like, um, like hundreds of people participated in this. And it was all about how awesome their pastor was. How, what big arms he had. No joke. Um, they even threw in some R&B because they would throw in a girl every now and then. All right? And it's hundreds of people. And they're dancing. And they're singing. And they're t they played it, like, I think on a Sunday morning. And they're talking all about how awesome their pastor is. And, and you know, honestly, I was, the video made me want to throw up. Because it wasn't about me. See, as much as I hate that whole thing, I don't know a pastor in the world that doesn't want to be loved by his people like that dude is. Not saying it's right. I'm just confessions of your pastor here. See, a lot of times I feel like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory in most of my relationships, in and out of the church. I ask myself all the time, I have to get away by myself and go, okay, 
here's the deal. Either I'm really jacked up or everyone else is jacked up and they just don't know it yet. But I know it. Because I've gone to counseling over this. Of dealing with this idea of, I, I just, I, I take loyalty very seriously. And so when people break loyalty with me, it's extremely tough for me. It's a whole lot easier for me to just not wish that you were dead. It's never that way. It's that I still long to be in those relationships. But I feel like it's a bad breakup. And I don't know how to handle it. I want to be a part of something. I want to be a part of a group of people. And so this is often the struggle that is within me, and yet the Holy Spirit graciously continues to strengthen me and to helping me to become more and more bold, even at the cost of suffering. Verse 4 here, he says, With respect to, to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter continues, as he did in chapter 3, this flood illustration of talking about Noah. See, non-believers and immature Christians will often think that you are weird and strange for not jumping into the flood of debauchery or of sin. I remember growing up, we used to do something. This is really rare. Kids, listen up. It's called playing outside. We did this every day, actually. It's crazy the great times that you can have outside. And I did this every day. Rain, snow, sleet, hail, the whole bit. And in the summertime, we all played outdoor baseball, basketball, hide-and-seek, spotlight, the whole, whole bit. It was awesome growing up in that sort of environment as a kid in a neighborhood. And I remember it would sometimes come these massive rains, but we wouldn't want to be done playing yet. And so we would go and, and, and we would put on like shorts or, or like swimming trunks and we would just go play in the, the water ditches. And, and literally the way that my mom's and dad's, uh, their yard is, is that you could take off running without plastic and like do a slip and slide into our ditch that was full of water. And it was awesome. No iPad, just rain and grass, the kind where you get up and you've got those little scratches from the grass all over your legs, but you're like, that's awesome. Let's do it again. Playing outside, yay. Right? And, and that's fun, and it was awesome. But what if that rain continued? See, I often think, you know, Noah told him for 120 years, it's gonna rain, I'm building a boat. Turn to Jesus, turn, or turn to God. Get in the boat. And it starts to rain. And I imagine all the non-believers, when those first few drops fell, I don't think they were like, oh my God, he was right. I don't think they flipped out. I think if anything, they probably began to celebrate. Like it's raining. Whoa! Maybe they had a party. I don't know. That's reading in between the lines right there. But maybe they're, they're jumping up and down. They're like, you know, it's raining. Like it's not been, it's been a huge drought. And yet when that happens, even for us here, we'll, we'll go outside and it's just like, man, feel this refreshing rain. And I bet, that, you know, they're knocking on the door of the boat and they're like, hey, Noah, it's raining. Come on out. And it was fun. Playing in the rain was awesome. But when it doesn't stop raining, people drown. 
once was an enjoyable thing, masked, sin, Satan, and death, masked in fun, in passions, became the very thing that killed him. See, the flood is not fun. The flood is judgment. It's judgment. They said they will make, blind you. They will make fun of you. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but in its end, it is the way to death. Everyday Church, another quote says this, Peter's message is clear. Sinning, excuse me, not sinning might lead to suffering, but it is better to suffer than to sin. Verse 5, he says, but, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So God is going to judge those people. He, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way that is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Psalm 1, 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is what Jesus, or Peter, the power of Jesus, by the power of the inspiration of Scripture, Holy Spirit, this is how he ends. And I think sometimes we need to be careful, a word of caution, in reading verses like verse 5. We need to be very careful that we don't get really excited about the passages that say that our enemies will suffer and experience eternal pain and hell. But that's my nature. That's what I want to do. Right? Somebody's rude to me for being righteous. They'll get theirs. I'm going to burn. You're going to burn with it. Y'all the kindling for the burning of the earth. That's my thoughts. Make fun of me now. Yep. You may have the big house on earth, but I got a mansion in heaven. And you got a shack in hell. Burn, baby, burn. I mean, that can be our mentality. Is that in some way we get some sort of sick joy out of already seeing our enemies burning in hell. Terrorist. Burn! Right? Not the gospel. Those things may be true, but it should grieve us up until that moment. Longing, petitioning, praying for, wanting them to know Jesus. Wanting those people, the very enemies, to know Jesus. What does Jesus do as he's hanging out? Lord Jesus, forgive them. They have just put nails into his hands. They've paraded him around town naked. They've ripped his, his back where literally his flesh is hanging off of his back like tassels on a really badly made jacket. He is beaten beyond recognition, and yet what is he doing in the midst of his suffering? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That should be our heart. In verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit 
the way God does. For the gospel was preached to even those who are dead. So he's speaking as he's saying, there was, uh, the gospel was preached to people. Now they are dead. Okay? So just like non-believers are going to die, believers are going to die. But yet, what does he continue on to say? That through, though judged in the flesh, as you and I will be, the way people are, all of humanity, believer, non-believer, judged, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what is he saying here? Peter's last encouragement to these people who are suffering and hurting is this, is that though believers die like unbelievers, they will live in Jesus. Death is not our last word. We will be resurrected in and through the power of Jesus this is why, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be willing to say that we are willing to suffer, to be obedient, knowing, knowing that suffering is coming. Relational suffering is coming. Mockery is coming. They will speak poorly against you. If they're not, if it's not there in your life, again, not for guilt, but we must ask ourselves, what is my heartbeat? Am I looking like the world? But our hope is, as Peter is saying through the inspiration of Scripture to these people who are suffering, they're experiencing social ostracism, and, and, and now it's eventually we could go through history, they're going to start being killed for being obedient. It's going to happen if we are obedient. If you find yourself in suffering for righteousness, may you not lose hope, brothers and sisters in Christ. May you not lose hope, brothers and sisters in Christ, in knowing that there is a glory to come. That's why Paul was able to say to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That this present suffering for doing what is right is totally worth it for his glory. And it will be worth it in the end to me as well as we enter in that good and faithful servant through the person and work of Jesus. Man, I love you all. I fight the drift like you do every day. But my prayer is that we will become through the power of the Holy Spirit that he will embody us and equip us to be even more obedient and when we suffer, we have placed within ourselves the full armor of God. We have the mind and the attitude of Jesus that no matter what comes our way, we think upon Jesus. We have the attitude of Jesus. We respond like Jesus. And this is a daily battle that we must put on our armor. And yet in doing so, when we can come together like this, or within our homes, or for lunch on a Tuesday, that we can encourage each other, support one another in that suffering, and then go back out and do it all over again. Because it's worth it. Even if in this moment it doesn't seem like it is. It is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.